This is our second to last message in the series on the attributes of God. For me, it has personally been a joyful experience, and I hope that it has been for you as well. I do want to point out that as we've been going through the attributes of God, we are not the only ones who have been studying the attributes of God. So on the other side of the wall, Big Pebbles has also been studying the attributes of God at the same time that we have. So thank you to all those who have been serving in Big Pebbles. And these are some of the topics that they have actually been covering while we have been covering the attributes of God. I'll read them to you, just a smattering of them. In Big Pebbles, they've been covering God is everywhere, all the time. What is that? Omnipresence. God knows all there is to know. Omniscience. God is perfectly holy. God is perfectly good. God can do anything he wants to. That is the omnipotence of God. And then finally, God is faithful through and through. So thank you to all those who have been serving in Big Pebbles. And I hope that everyone in this church has been encouraged by the attributes of God, including the children who are learning the attributes along with us. This morning we will be talking about an aspect of the attributes of God that they will not be covering in Big Pebbles, and I think in a moment you will see why. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, thank you that you care for us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are afflicted in all our afflictions. Thank you that you are compassionate to us. Lord, as we study a deep and difficult topic this morning regarding your emotions, Lord, we pray that you would give us insight into your scriptures and into your word. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God loves. God rejoices. God is angry. God is wrathful. God grieves. God is compassionate. All of these phrases appear in the Bible. All of these phrases appear in Scripture. We read them all the time on the pages of the Word of God. And yet, we gloss over them. We think nothing of them. We accept them at face value. But underneath the surface of these words boils a deep-seated, profound theological question. Does God have emotion? Does God have emotion? Is God an emotional God? Can God change his emotion? This question is known in theology as the doctrine of God's impassibility. The doctrine of God's impassibility. Does God have emotion? Now, the impassibility of God is technically not an attribute in and of itself. It is actually a subset or a subdivision of another attribute, and that is God's immutability, the unchangeableness of God. Does God change? And we already saw that God does not change. Now, I will 
admit right off the bat that this is a very difficult question. This is a highly controversial question. This is a complex topic. And I do want to say thank you to the elders for giving me the chance to, in a sense, indulge in this topic. It is, again, a complex topic, and it's not even something that we really cover in seminary. It's that profound. It's that complex. It is not commonplace when it comes to thinking about the attributes of God to discuss the impassibility of God. So I do want to say thank you to the elders for allowing me to cover this topic. It's actually a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. And you're thinking, the impassibility of God? Why would that be near and dear to your heart? Well, if you have questions about that, you can ask me afterwards. I do believe that this morning we are delving into the deep side of the theological swimming pool. So we'll really have to put our thinking caps on. And I apologize in advance. There are going to be a lot of theological terms. In a sense, don't try this at home. Actually, no, you should try this at home because you should search the scriptures to see if these things are true. But I want to give credit to Kevin DeYoung, Phil Johnson, Wayne Grudem, and John Frame. These are better men than I, and they agree with me and their position on impassibility. Actually, they don't agree with me. They have no idea who I am, but I agree with them in their position on impassibility. And I could not improve upon what they had to say, so all I'm going to do is pass along to you what better men than I have to say about this topic. Does God have emotion? Well, my estimation, there are two separate but interrelated questions that have to do with the doctrine of impassibility. First, does God suffer? Second, does God have emotion? Have you ever thought about these questions? When you read your Bible, have you ever thought, does God have emotion? Does God feel? Is God a feeling God? Well, let's look at the first question, does God suffer? The term impassibility means unable to suffer or not suffering. Passion means to suffer. It comes from the original Latin root passio, meaning suffering or enduring. And this is what we mean when we say the passion of the Christ. When we talk about the passion of the Christ or passion week, we are referring to the last week of Jesus' life, the suffering of Jesus Christ. We are not using passion in the same sense that we tend to think of the word passion. When we tend to think of the word passion, we think that Jesus was so enthusiastic or so excited to go to the cross. Well, that's not what we're talking about. The passion of the Christ refers to Jesus' suffering. To suffer, according to dictionary.com, means to undergo, be subjected to, or endure pain, distress, injury, loss, or anything unpleasant. So the impassibility of God refers to the inability of God to suffer. God cannot suffer. God does not suffer. Over the past 400 years, the Reformed Confessions all say in unity that God is a God without body, parts, or passions. That is, he is a God without passions. 
This is affirmed by the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Presbyterians, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Baptists, the Savoy Declaration, which is a confession of the Congregational Church, and the 39 Articles of the Church of England, the Anglicans. The Reformed Confessions all say in unity over the past 400 years that God is a God who does not suffer, that God is a God who cannot suffer, that God is a God without passions. Why the big deal? Why the big deal? Well, the question revolves around the nature of suffering and the nature of God. If God suffers, does this mean that something external to God forced God to change? Can God be acted upon passively? Can he be forced to feel something? Can God experience something that causes him to suffer? For instance, when we hear about a tragic car accident, just a terrible car accident, we are moved to grief, to compassion, to sadness. And it should move us to grief, compassion, and sadness. Well, in a sense, our emotions are reflexive. They are reactionary. You could think about it like this. When that car accident happened, we were forced to feel a certain way. And that's what we mean when we say we were moved to compassion, to grief, to sadness. Well, can the same be said of God? Did this tragic car accident force God to feel a certain way? Are God's emotions reflexive? Are they reactionary? Can God feel passion, compassion, pain, and grief just like we do? Was God forced to feel a certain way? Well, if so, if God suffers, this means, number one, God is not independent because he is subject to something outside of himself for his emotional state. Number two, God is not omnipotent because some external force is able to overcome him to force him to feel a specific emotion. Sometimes we aren't in control of our emotions. And in this case, God wouldn't be in control of his. Thirdly, God is not immutable. He was forced to change his emotions based on an external occurrence. If God's creatures can change his mood by what we do, does that mean that God changes? In fact, if God's creatures forced him to change his mood based on what we do, doesn't that mean God is just like us? Don't we change our mood based on what other people do to us? If we are to believe that God is immutable, that God is independent, that God is omnipotent, then God cannot suffer. God must not suffer. God does not suffer. God cannot react to anything external to himself. God cannot be subjected to pain, distress, loss, or injury. To put it in theological terms, we will affirm right at the outset that God is a God without passions. God does not suffer. This is what the Christian church has held to for the past 
2,000 years. John Frame says, God in his transcendent nature cannot be harmed in any way, nor can he suffer loss to his being. In his eternal existence, suffering loss could only mean losing some attribute, being defeated in his war with Satan, or otherwise failing to accomplish his eternal plan. Scripture assures us that none of these things will happen, and so they cannot happen. In this sense, God is impassable. So for 2,000 years, the history of the church has affirmed that God does not suffer. You cannot force God to feel a certain way. Well, over the past 100 years or so, this doctrine has become highly controversial. Highly controversial. And in fact, it is commonplace now to say that God not only suffer, but that God must suffer if he is to truly love us. Neo-Orthodox theologian Jürgen Moltmann argued in his book, Crucified God, that God the Father suffers. God is a suffering God. He gave three reasons why. First, the passion of the Christ. If Jesus suffered, God must suffer. If God the Son suffered in Jesus Christ, the Father also suffered. Number two, the nature of love. Moldman says that love entails, quote-unquote, reciprocity between God and creation. If God truly loves his creation, then God must be affected by his creation. If God truly loves us, in a sense, he must be able to be hurt by us. For instance, who has the most potential to hurt you out of everybody that you know? the person that you love the most, the person that you share the deepest love relationship with, that person has the potential to hurt you in the greatest way possible. Likewise, Moltmann says, if God truly loves us, he must be able to be hurt by us. He must be vulnerable to us. Thirdly, the problem of human suffering. This is Moltmann's answer to the problem of evil. God has lost control over all the events of human history, over all the evil that goes on in the world, and all he can do is suffer with you. That's his answer to the problem of evil. What I'd like to do is formulate some responses to Moltmann's reasons for a suffering God. We'll go through them one by one. First, the passion of the Christ. Moltmann said, if Jesus suffered, then God must also suffer. Well, in response, I'd like to say if Jesus, the God-man, suffered, this does not mean God as God suffered. I'll read that one more time. If Jesus, the God-man, suffered, this does not mean that God as God suffered. And there are four reasons for this. First, the rejection of the heresy of theopascatism. Like most of the doctrines that have been passed down to us through church history, these are all developed out of a debate, out of controversy. The ancient church was met with two heresies. Theopascatism was the first heresy. This term comes from two Greek words, theo, of course, meaning God, and pasco, meaning to suffer. 
This is a belief that when Christ suffered on the cross, God suffered. In a sense, when Jesus died, God died. Now, this is a Christological heresy because it denies that Jesus had two natures. It says that Jesus only had one nature. Jesus was only divine. He was not human. Jesus was only deity. He was not really a man. And so when Jesus suffered on the cross, God suffered. Deity suffered. Divinity suffered. The divine suffered. God suffered. Now that's a mistake because we know that Jesus not only has one nature, but two natures. He is the God-man. He is the divine human. So Jesus, the God-man, suffered and died, but God did not suffer and die. Secondly, the rejection of the heresy of patripassionism. This is the other heresy that the ancient church dealt with. This comes from the root words patri, meaning father and passion, to suffer. This is a Trinitarian heresy. It's based in modalism. This taught that the father is the same person as the son. The father and the son are the same person. Therefore, when the son of God suffered on the cross, the father suffered also. This is a Trinitarian heresy. Now, we know this is a mistake as well, because God is one God, yet three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son are both God, but they are not the same person. So again, when Jesus, the God-man, suffered and died, God did not suffer and die. So how do we answer this question? When Jesus suffered and died, did God suffer? Did God suffer and die? Well, the answer comes thirdly with the importance of the doctrine of the communication of properties. Again, I apologize for all the theological terms, but this has been what it's been called since the 400s AD, 400 AD, when Cyril of Alexandria taught this, and it was developed well by Calvin. In a nutshell, the communication of properties says, what can be said of the God-man, Jesus Christ, cannot automatically be assumed about either nature. What can be said about the God-man, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, cannot automatically be assigned to God. Whatever Christ did on earth, he did as the God-man, the unique person, the divine human. For instance... When Christ was asleep on the boat, the God-man was asleep. But God was not asleep. God doesn't sleep. Psalm 125 says God neither slumbers nor sleeps. God doesn't get tired. God doesn't need to take a nap. God doesn't need his beauty rest. God does not sleep. When Christ was hungry after fasting for 40 days, in Matthew chapter 4, the God-man was hungry, but God does not hunger. Does God get hungry? Does God feel hunger pains? Of course not. God doesn't hunger. So when we say Jesus died, this means God as a man died on the cross, but you cannot say 
God died. The God-man, Jesus Christ, died, but God is not dead. God cannot die. God will never die. God is always alive. God is forever alive. God is eternally alive. God cannot die. My favorite hymn in all of hymnody is the hymn written by Charles Wesley, And Can It Be? And in that hymn, Wesley wrote, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Well, if you know what Charles Wesley meant, that thou, my God, as the God-man Jesus Christ died for me, then that's okay. And I still sing it that way. And by the way, I do believe that is what Charles Wesley meant when he wrote those words, because he was quite the theologian and closet Calvinist, by the way. He was just deathly afraid of his brother, John Wesley, who was a militant Arminian. So that's why he hid away in his closet and wrote hundreds and hundreds of hymns. And I do believe that's what Charles Wesley meant. But in order to avoid any confusion over the doctrine of impassibility, over this very doctrine that we are talking about this morning, some modern or newer hymnals actually tweak the hymn so that instead of singing, amazing love, how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me, they actually tweak it to say that thou my Lord shouldst die for me. And that's okay too. But that's the reason for the change to avoid any confusion over the doctrine of God's suffering. The bottom line is this. When Jesus suffered, we do not mean that God suffered. In the passion of the Christ, the God-man suffered and died, but God as God did not suffer and die. God cannot suffer and God cannot die. Fourth reason is the historic testimony of the church. In the Council of Rome in 382, this is one of the good councils, the church universal concluded, think about this, this goes all the way back to the year 382. We're talking about a doctrine which has been developed over 2,000 years. If anyone says that in the passion of the cross, it is God himself who felt the pain and not the flesh and the soul which Christ the Son of God had taken to himself, he is mistaken. The second argument Moldman gives for a suffering God is this, the nature of love. Moldman says that in order for God to be truly loving, he must be able to be hurt by his creation. Just like his creation, we can be hurt by the people that we love. However, the love of God in scripture is not vulnerable. It's described as strong, Psalm 18, Psalm 31, Psalm 116. It's described as omnipotent, such that nothing can separate us from it. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Love does not require us to suffer in the same way as our beloved. Let me try to illustrate it like this. My daughter, my youngest daughter, my two-year-old, she loves to play with puzzles. But sometimes when she's playing with puzzles, she gets a little frustrated she gets angry, and she cries these big tears because sometimes that piece with the little fish on it doesn't 
fit the piece with the little turtle on it. And she's just crying these big tears. And I feel compassion for her. And I get down to her level and I help her to fix the puzzle, to work on the puzzle because I love her. But I do not lose control over my emotions. I do not cry big tears because that piece with the little cactus on it just doesn't piece fit with the piece with the little horse on it. And I just lose it. Does that mean I don't love her? Of course not. I still love her. Do I not love her because I remain in control of myself? Do I not love her because I remain in control of my own emotions? Of course not. I still love her. Thirdly, the problem of evil. Moltmann says that the answer to the problem of evil is that God is in no more control over evil than we are. And all he can do is suffer with us. Well, I beg to differ. Scripture says that the answer to the problem of evil is that God still has control over everything, and yet God still has compassion on us. Isaiah 63, verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. God is afflicted with us emotionally. God grieves with us. God has compassion upon us. The evil that happens in the world does not take God by surprise. It is not unexpected. It is all a part of his plan. And yet he still has compassion on his creation. Which leads us to our second question. Does God have emotion? Does God have emotion? Now again, this is a complicated issue. But I'm going to try to simplify it for us as much as possible. In general, just generally speaking. There are three positions when it comes to speaking about the emotions of God. On one side, we have the position that God is passable. God suffers. God is entirely reactionary. God is reflexive to everything that happens in the world. God doesn't know what's happening next. And so, for instance, when that tragic car accident happens, God is taken by surprise and he is moved to feel pain, compassion, grief, sadness, just like we are. What does that sound like? It sounds like open theism. Open theism is a direct rejection of the doctrine of impassibility. Open theism teaches that God does not know the future, and so he is reactionary to everything that happens. God, in a sense, is just like we are. So that's one extreme of the spectrum. The other extreme is what we will call classical impassibility, which teaches that God does not have passions, and in fact, God does not have any emotions whatsoever. This started as far back as Philo of Alexandria, 30 to 45 AD. That's very early. He stated that God does not have emotions. In Christian tradition, this is passed along to us by Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas. I mean, these are formidable names. All of these theologians deny that God has any emotion whatsoever. God does not feel. The definition of classical impassibility is as follows. God does not experience emotional changes, either from within or affected by his relationship to creation. 
He is not changed from within or without. He remains unchanged and unchanging, both prior and subsequent to creation. Again, God has absolutely no emotion at all. That is classical impassibility. So what does a classicist do when he reads his Bible and he sees phrases like, God loves, God rejoices, God is wrathful, God is angry, God is jealous. What does a classicist do? Well, the classical impassibility, position of classical impassibility, teaches that all biblical statements of God's emotions are anthropopathisms, figurative or metaphorical expressions ascribing human emotions to God. God is so high and lifted up. God is so lofty. God is God and we are not. And so in order for us to understand something about God, the writers of the Bible had to put him in terms that we would understand. Biblical writers are putting things in a way that we would grasp. Now, we understand this physically speaking. Physically speaking. These are called anthropomorphisms. When the Bible describes God as having hands, Exodus 15, feet, 1 Kings 5, eyes, 2 Chronicles 16, ears, James 5, 4. Now, we understand that the Bible's, Bible writers are using metaphorical language. Because God obviously does not have eyes. God does not have ears. God does not have hands. Because God is a spirit, John 4, 24. And a spirit does not have flesh and bones, Luke 24, 39. These are called anthropomorphisms. So when we read in the Bible God having eyes, ears, hands, and feet, we automatically know these are metaphors. These are metaphors. They're figurative expressions. God does not really have eyes, hands, and feet. Likewise, anthropopathisms are the emotional equivalent of anthropomorphisms. Whenever we see God as having emotions, God doesn't really have emotions. It's just metaphorical language. Now, I want to say, I just want to make this really, really clear. If this is your position on God, I respect your position. If you do not believe that God has emotions, I will not debate you. This is a very respectable position. It has been handed down from generation to generation throughout the history of the church by some very formidable theologians, and I will not break fellowship with you over this issue. I will love you as a brother. I will love you as a sister. However, I do believe differently. And let's look again at the language of anthropomorphism. I believe anthropomorphisms still point to a reality in God. For instance, when scripture says in 2 Chronicles 16.9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, this describes the reality that God sees everything, even though he does not have physical eyes. When scripture says in James 5.4, the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. This points to the fact that God hears everything, even though God does not have physical ears. 
the anthropomorphisms, the metaphors, still point to a reality in God. So if we say the emotional language of the Bible is only metaphorical, it's only anthropopathic, isn't it still a metaphor for something? Doesn't this language still point to something? Doesn't this language, even if it is a metaphor, still point to something in God? For instance, you could say that when the Bible says God is angry, he's not really angry, but then what is he? God's not really angry when it says God is angry, but then what is he? What is the metaphor for? When you read in your Bible that God rejoices, you could say that God's not really rejoicing. He doesn't have emotion. Well, then what is the metaphor for? What is God doing? Anthropopathisms must also point to a reality in God. I believe that a clear and straightforward reading of the biblical text is to say that God has emotions. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Psalm 78.40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Exodus 32.10, now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Psalm 103.13, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. It sounds like God has an emotion. It sounds like God has an emotional life. I believe that Kevin DeYoung says it right, that we do violence to the text if we reject these scriptures which speak of emotion in God. So is there a better way to deal, to make sense, to do justice to these biblical texts than to say they're just metaphorical? Well, in the middle of the spectrum is what we will call sovereign emotion. And I will define sovereign emotion as this. God does not experience emotional changes affected by his relationship to creation. But God does experience emotional change from within. God cannot suffer and is incapable of being acted upon by an external force, but his emotions are internally ordained. Let's break down sovereign emotion with these three aspects. First, God's emotions are not like human emotions. They're not like ours. They're not sinful. Nor does it have any physical manifestations. God doesn't get sick to his stomach. God doesn't get a rush of adrenaline. God doesn't get, God doesn't cry or shed tears. God's emotions are not like ours. Secondly, God's emotions are better understood as affections, not passions. And here's the key distinction. Jonathan Edwards says this, the affections and passions are frequently spoken of as the same, and yet, in the more common use of speech, there is in some respect a difference. Affection is a word that, in its ordinary signification, seems to be something more extensive than passion. 
being used for all vigorous, lively actings of the will or inclination, but passion for those that are more sudden and whose effects on the animal spirits are more violent and the mind more overpowered and less in its own command. What Edwards is doing is he's making a very important distinction. Affections are emotions which are under control. They are active. They originate not from an external source, but from an internal source. They are voluntary. They are ordered. They are rational. They are controlled. Passions are passively brought out. We are forced to feel passions. We are overwhelmed and overpowered by passions. Passions are the kind of emotions that overcome you and sweep over you. They are passive. This is a very important distinction. And I believe this is the key. Packer says, the conception of God as impassable represents no single biblical term, but was introduced into Christian theology in the second century. What was it supposed to mean? The historical answer is not impassivity, unconcern, and impersonal detachment in the face of the creation, not inability or unwillingness to empathize with human pain and grief either. It means simply that God's experiences do not come upon him as ours come upon us. His are foreknown, willed, and chosen by himself and are not involuntary surprises forced on him from outside, apart from his own decision in the ways that ours regularly are. Insofar as God enters into suffering and grief, it is by his own deliberate decision. He is never his creature's hapless victim. Let us be clear, a totally impassive God would be a horror and not the God of Calvary at all. So the position of sovereign emotion says that God does not have passions, but God does have affections. God has sovereignly ordained, eternally decreed changes in emotion. God sovereignly ordains and God eternally decrees from eternity past his own changes in emotion. Now, all illustrations fall short, but let me try to illustrate it like this. Whenever I take my daughter to the doctor to get her shots, and she should get her shots, I always feel compassion for her. I know she's going to reach out for me and cry and try to hold on to my neck. She doesn't want to get those shots. And then I have to hold her down when the nurse is giving her the shot. And she's crying. And I, I'm just, I feel all choked up. I feel compassion for her. I have emotion towards her. But think about this. I was the one, well, not really me, my wife, who called for the doctor's appointment. I was the one who drove the car. I was the one who brought her into the office. I was the one who held her down. I decreed that all of these things should happen. And when the event of the shot happens, I feel compassion. My feeling is not unexpected. In fact, it's entirely expected. In fact, I will go a step further. I orchestrated my own feeling of compassion. If I didn't do any of that, I would never have felt it. My emotion is not a passive response. 
It is an actively ordained emotion. In this case, I am feeling affections, not passions. Frame says, does such responsiveness imply passivity in God? To say so would be highly misleading. God responds only to what he has himself ordained. He has chosen to create a world that will often grieve him. So ultimately, he is active rather than passive. So here's the important distinction. I affirm that God is without passions, as all the Reformed confessions assert, but that God does have affections. God's emotions are not passions, but God's emotions are affections. These emotions are active. They are sovereignly ordained. They are eternally decreed. These emotions are all a part of God's sovereign plan. So back to our spectrum here. I reject open theism, which states that God has passions. I also do not hold to classical impassibility, which says that God has no passions and no affections. And I'm going to return to our definition of classical impassibility. God does not experience emotional changes either from within those are affections, or affected by his relationship to creation, those are passions. He is not changed from within, those are affections, or without, those are passions. So you see, the classical impassibility position rejects emotion entirely in God. And again, I will say it again, if this is your position, I will not debate you. I will respect you and love you as a brother or sister in Christ but you can never read any John Piper book, any single one of them. I assert that God has sovereign emotions, that God does not have passions, but God has affections. Thirdly, God's affections are consistent with his character. Wayne Grudem says, God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, promises, Yet God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. Now, what Grudem is saying is that in order for God to maintain his immutability, he must respond emotionally different to different situations. For instance, when evil happens in the course of history, in order for God to maintain his immutable justice, God must feel anger for that evil. Whenever a sinner cries out to God to save me, save me, O Lord, in order for God to maintain his immutable grace and mercy, God must feel compassion for that sinner. God's change in affections is not only foreordained, it is foreordained in order to maintain his immutability. What I'd like to do is I'd like to close with three brief practical applications. First, we worship a God who does not lose control over himself or anything else. If God cannot control himself, if God cannot control his own emotions, how could we ever trust God to control anything in our lives? We can't. But because God is impassable, God never loses control over himself. God never loses control over his own emotions. And God never loses control over anything that happens in this world or in our lives. 
Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things after the counsel of his own will. The answer to the problem of evil is not, as Moltmann says, that God has lost control over all events and all he can do is suffer with us and grieve with us. The answer to the problem of evil is that God is in complete control over all events and yet God still grieves with us by his own sovereign decree. God decrees all events and God decrees his emotional response to those events. Secondly, We know a God who can sympathize us with us in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Brethren, Jesus can sympathize with us. Jesus understands our emotions. Jesus understands our weaknesses. And yet he was without sin. So brothers and sisters, go to Christ with your weaknesses. Go to Christ with every emotion that you can think of. And he will show you how to be victorious. Third and last, we have a God that is not stoic to the events in our lives. Brethren, in my opinion, when you read your Bible, know that you have a God who can feel. Know that you have a God who grieves, who has compassion, who loves, who gets angry. Know the truth of this. We do not worship a stoic, cold, unfeeling, distant God. We worship a God who is afflicted in all our afflictions. And I close with this quote from Spurgeon. I believe in a God who can feel. As to Baal and the gods of the heathen, they may be passionless and without emotion or without anything that is akin to feeling. Not so do I find Jehovah to be described. How did his anger kindle when he gave his people over to the sword and was angry with his inheritance? And how transporting is his love to the daughter of Zion when he rejoices over her with joy? He has a pity, yes, and a sorrow too, according to this book. I dismiss, therefore, the theology of the schoolmen. I am quite satisfied with the divinity that I find in these scriptures. Believe it then, dear friends, with all your hearts, that God has kindly feelings towards those that fear him, such as a father has towards his children. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, Lord, you are indeed so high and above us, we could never imagine. Lord, we just are so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And Lord, we are so grateful that you entered into our world in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Lord, help us to go to you with all of our struggles. Help us to go to Christ with all of our weaknesses, with all of our emotions, understanding that you understand us. Lord, we lift up all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.